From Tokyo, Japan, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Rock Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. Coming up in today's show, Professor Baruch Fischhoff will join us to talk about risk. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grok Round 5000, here on the Grok Science Show. Back to the program. Well, for scientists, Christmas just isn't long enough. Uh, this year's Nobel Prizes have been announced, and as soon as it's on the news, it's been replaced by news of more exciting things like wars and what's going on with the Kardashians. Well, the issue of how we as scientists and the community reach out to the rest of the population is certainly not uh, trivial and something that needs further examination. Joining us today is our very special guest, uh, Professor Baruch Fischhoff from Carnegie Mellon University. He's a professor in the Social and Decision Sciences Department, as well as Engineering and Public Policy. Uh, Professor Fischhoff, thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, thanks for having me. So, uh, you recently written an article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, I believe it was an introduction to a colloquium, uh, the Sackler Colloquium, about how scientists and the scientific community could better improve uh, communicating uh, concepts such as uncertainty, which somehow the public has a hard time to grasp at, at points. Could you tell us a little bit about the work behind this and you know what uh, motivated you? Uh, yeah, thank, thank you. So there the uh, National Academy of Sciences uh, hosted two Sackler Colloquia on the science of science communication, each of which produced a special issue of the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. One came out last September, one came out uh, last month, uh, September 2014. And our goal was to make all of the sciences that have something to say about how to communicate science accessible to the wider audience, both professional communicators like yourself and scientists who are interested in explaining their own work, uh, also like, your, also like your, yourself. You know, you, you have a very interesting history. You've, you have a background in mathematics, uh, engineering, as well as in public policy. Uh, you know, in terms of how the media has covered sciences over the years, uh, what has your perspective been? I think the media have played a vital role because the media, like like yourself, are in much closer contact with broad audiences than most scientists are. So those of us who are fortunate enough to be professors get to speak to classes. We get feedback from the classes. If students are giving us blank stares or everybody's getting a question wrong on the test, then we get feedback on how well we're communicating. And, and we also get to decide what the curriculum is, the curriculum is. When scientists communicate with broad audiences, then the audience determines what's important and what's typically for any complicated problem 
knows any scientist only knows a piece of it. So the scientists are challenged to find what the public really wants to know about. And then we get very poor feedback on how well we're doing. And when we communicate, or when the scientists or the scientific community communicate, talks to a broad audience, and the audience doesn't seem to understand, it's very easy to blame the audience when, when, when the fault lies with us, that either we're not telling them things that they're interested in, or we're telling those, we're communicating those things in a way that's really hard to understand. So the media play this this vital role. The kind of research that people like myself do tries to help scientists understand their audience better. And so, uh, with this colloquium, the the one of the main topics you've addressed is on uh, uncertainty and. That seems to be the crux at a lot of these, you know, polarizing debates. Mm-hmm. For example, with climate change, and is there so? What is the science behind how you, how the public perceives these uncertainty, and what's the best way for scientists to frame that? The science has made a lot of progress in explaining our best estimates at the risks or the benefits associated with different things, and even explaining where those risks and benefits come from. That that so if we do our job diligently, that is, if we draw on the science and we test our messages, we can explain how risky and how safe and how beneficial things are. The frontier of science now is to explain how good our knowledge is. If you at the time we're talking, Ebola has just burst into the into the news, and my read on the on the communications is that they're stumbling in trying to explain how well we understand uh, understand this disease. It's a complicated message because we may understand a lot about the virus, but we understand less about the institutions that are entrusted with managing those risks. So when you have uh, authorities at a hospital or at a national level stumbling over themselves or spinning the information in order to reassure the public when they haven't, they don't actually know what's what's happening, you end up needlessly confusing people. So to do a better job of communicating uncertainty, you first need to do a better job of the analytical work of figuring out how great that uncertainty is. And then you can begin leveling with the public, being candid where we're confident and where we're, where we're not. So that's what we're, the, the research community, is working on right now. Mm-hmm. But isn't one of the problems with with the media itself, where a lot of stories are now just reduced to you know convenient sound bites, and it becomes a very black and white situation? And with so much information, actually, uh, a lot of people cannot absorb it in a in a proper way. You know what 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 are the challenges in terms of the the media institutions themselves? In any human communication, our challenge is to use that window of opportunity the best way we can. If the, if for scientists or public health officials or the operators of nuclear power plants have a very small communication window, then they bear an extra duty to get their message right. So that means uh, learning about their audience, finding out what's their on their minds and finding concise, tested ways of getting across uh, useful, uh, getting across the information that that that, that pe- people need. 
I think, unfortunately, an awful lot of communication is by by people responsible for managing uh, risky systems uh, is just improvised. People just say what comes to the, their mind or what they think a poorly envisioned audience wants. So the audience really doesn't have a half a chance. And in a way, the news media are, are, are handicapped because the scientists don't speak to the point and don't speak in in clear ways. Mm-hmm. And it, that's hard to do if you, you know, if you, if you, I mean, the missing piece is often the research on uh, communication. So that's what, that was the purpose of these colloquia and the purpose of the work that we're doing uh, for a number of years. The food, our Food and Drug Administration has a risk communication advisory committee that I chaired for a few years. FDA has a strategic plan for risk communication, which is trying to systematically upgrade the qualities of the communication so that good work is because they have the foundations for communicating well when they're called on to do it. You know, in the last 10 years, you know, the so-called social media has taken some chunk away from the the traditional TV, radio, and, and print. Has that altered how, you know, good information gets diffused in, into our society? In some ways, it's made uh, communications easier in that one has points of access to, to many kinds of information. And, and it's made communication easier in the sense that one has points of access to many more kinds of uh, communication. So you can't get a lot through in, a, in, in, in something small, in, in a small window of communication, but you can link people to something that's better. And then we have to ho- have something good for where people get that fuller information, the people who are motivated. Mm-hmm. So for, we've been working for a number of years with a group at the Veterans Administration and the Dartmouth Medical School in developing a drug fact box that parallels the nutrition fact boxes that many countries countries have. And our medical colleagues there have found that if you can get people to a well-designed label, people can understand a lot about the magnitude of the risks and the magnitude of the benefits and the quality of the of the information, but you do need to do your homework in analyzing the risks so you know what to say, and then in testing your messages so that people get something that's worth their while. You've been teaching for many years now. I'm just curious, do you get a sense that students are more curious about science in general these days, or are they just so inundated with the work at, at school that they don't have time to absorb subjects which may not be in their expertise? Well, I'm fortunate in teaching at, at Carnegie Mellon University. We have very good, very hardworking uh, students. You know, I hope the rest of the world is like our students. I also uh, manage or run a, uh, a a wonderful undergraduate major in in decision sciences and in, in this, my, our interdisciplinary department of engineering and public policy. So I, I get to work with wonderful young people. It's my feeling that because of this growing access to science. Students are know a lot more. They're excited about the uh, about the, the science. The educational challenge that we face is in how to help the students integrate 
the bits of science that they get from individual scientists, mm -hmm. with each scientist really happy to talk about their work, into solutions to real-world problems. So at, there I find actually that my engineering department has the, the, the right perspective, where you assume that nobody's got the answer to building a bridge or designing a communication, and you need to get everybody at the table, the people who can analyze the risk, the people who know the psychology, the people who know the communication channels, uh, people who know the subject matter, and have them work together on, um, on, on the solution. So I, I think one of the things that young people, everybody, needs in order to translate the, the bountiful science into, uh, into something useful. In terms of entertainment, say movies or TV programs, you know, what happens to some of the more inspiring uh, shows out, out there? If I could remember well enough, I'm sure that was part of uh, and what got me engaged in science as well as uh, having some inspiring teachers and reading a lot of, uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, science fiction. I think science in the news, in the media, difficult problems in the, in, in the world is what arrests and motivates our students and I'm sure, you know, sure many other ones and challenges how to pull all of that together. So from the perspective of my discipline, decision science, we always start problems by our work on a, on a problem by trying to assemble all of the science that's relevant to doing something useful and then we try to figure out where are where is the public or the stakeholders with respect to understanding that problem and then close the bridge by providing people with the information most relevant to them in the most comprehensible terms and conversely telling the experts uh, what it is the public wants to know and where they're looking for for solutions so it requires a team approach to creating this bridge between the public and the and the scientific community. And that's same if you're working on uh, the health effects of electromagnetic fields or sexually transmitted infections or climate change or sexual assault or paint strip or any of the other projects we've worked on over the years. When you say decision science, are you talking in terms of uh, a decision tree or a certain process, or are you talking generally in terms of being doing a thorough job of getting all the facts from different perspectives? So one of the... In decision science, we have a, a toolkit or a set of methods that include analytical methods for summarizing the science and figuring out what's important in a variety of situations, and behavioral methods for listening to people to see what's important to them and communicating with them to put them in a better position, empowering them to make uh, better decisions, and then to evaluate the quality of our work. So the analytical tools, so a decision tree is one of those. It, some people think of decision trees as assuming that, that it, when you start an analysis by trying to direct to draw somebody's decision tree, you don't have to assume that they're rational, but you do have to assume that it's your obligation to look at the world from their perspective and see what are their objectives, what are the sources of uncertainty, what are the feasible options that you can do. You can't stand outside of a person's situation and say, oh, I know just what you should do in order to manage Ebola here, follow my instructions. And when you may risk telling them to do something that makes no sense to them or isn't feasible given their life circumstances. So 
So we use these decision analytic tools to take a disciplined look at the situations that people are facing so that we're solving their problem, not telling them about our wonderful science. We're happy to do that if we have the, if we have the chance. Well, that's quite interesting. You mentioned that, you know, the, the audience or the, the person viewing these stories may not think in a, in a rational way. And a lot of this probably depends on how you, you frame the question. And, and I, I think you're probably familiar with George Lakoff's work with how framing mm-hmm. makes all the difference. You know, what, what are some of the uh, examples of good framing you've seen in terms of scientists making a story with the media? An important kind of framing is to assume that you're to treat your audience respectfully. That is to listen to them before speaking, provide information that's relevant to uh, relevant to them. Assume that if the communication isn't working, it's your problem, not their their problem. Uh, one of the areas where we've been working, we worked over the years, is on adolescent decision making, and people are often very dismissive of, 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 ad, of adolescents. But if you sit and talk to them, if you think of anybody as being irrational, it would be adolescents. Adolescent decision-making, people will tell you, is an oxy, oxymoron. But if you uh, sit and if you talk to adolescents, you find that they're very analytic. They're very attuned to the, um, to the complexities of, of, of the world. They get messages that are are disrespectful or hectoring so they don't know how to how, how, how to trust how to trust them so we have a uh, we did have an interactive video intervention that we developed about 15 years ago there's a big replication that's in in the field now that treated adolescents respectfully and helped in order to help them make the decisions that they wanted regarding their uh, their relationships and it was found in a recent review to be one of the handful of things that actually uh, improved adolescents' sexual sexual health. So the, I would say the most important thing in framing is to respect your uh, respect your audience. Okay, great. Well, it, it seems we've covered uh, a lot of ground here today. Uh, I'd like to thank you again for joining us here. And um, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or your work? Oh, well, I... I Put in, given the audience, I put in a plug for our book, uh, uh, Risk, a very short introduction I wrote with a mathematician and a philosopher of science named John, John Cadvani. If people would like to learn more, I recommend the two, search for uh, Science of Science Communication, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. There's the FDA has a, a guide, a free guide, you can download it, called Communicating Risks and Benefits. All of these try to make the science of uh, communicate sciences of communication accessible to people available to people professor fishoff thank you so much for joining us here today no thanks for having me and we were just talking to professor baruch fishoff from carnegie mellon university he's professor in social and decision sciences and in engineering and public policy his book Risk, a very short introduction, is available at Amazon and online.
Welcome back to the program. Well, Professor Fishhoff has kindly agreed to join us on this week's edition of the Grokatron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today's game is the Decider. Uh, Professor Fishhoff will be giving advice to five subjects here today on how to better make their decisions or framing. Uh, subject number one, uh, President of the United States, uh, Barack Obama, uh, what advice would you like to give him? I, my, so my advice to the President would be to uh, have a, um, a communications testing staff that will uh, provide proper scientifically sound information on where the public is on on different issues. Uh, we all tend to exaggerate how well we understand our audience and how well uh, they, un uh, they understand us. The president deserves good information, uh, not just the intuitions of uh, his or her staff um, uh, about a public that they're far removed from and see through very murky glasses. So I would say uh, do the science, do the communication on a scientific, to a scientific standard. Uh, subject number two, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. Uh, what's the advice you would give for them? I would say realize in its communications that people are solving that that the realize in its communications that that the action regarding climate change will come from decisions that involve just uh, not just climate. There's uh, there's health, there's uh, economics, there's jobs, there's political sovereignty. So don't assume that information about climate, however well uh, communicated, uh, leads directly to any kind of uh, any, any, any decision. So, and that means providing the same attention to communicating the other aspects of what it means to have cap and trade or to have... Uh, climate, uh, climate refu refu uh, re refugees. So communicate in terms of decisions, not just in terms of climate change. All right. Uh, subject number three: uh, proponent of atheism, Richard Dawkins. Uh, I would say have people have audience have one-on-one -on -one interviews. Have have scientists do one-on-one -on -one interviews with a diverse audience of people who listen, who hear your talks, and get feedback from them on how you come across. But don't, don't you also want to have tested out with people who don't agree with you? Well, that's what I, that's what I said, a diverse oh, okay. I, I, I tried to say a diverse audience. Right? Oh, okay, okay. Sorry. We disagree, men, women, different religious and ethnic and, and, and ethnic, uh, ethnic backgrounds. Okay, they, great. We, we, could all, we could all use that. Uh, but, of course, uh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Turn down the screaming a little bit. <laughs> all right, well, subject number four, and I, I guess since it's in the news, uh, the Nobel, Nobel Prize Committee. How do you think they fare in putting science in the spotlight? When the surprise announcements are made, it's a teachable moment about the nature of, of, of the science and and also what that science means in people's lives. So it should be possible to, while preserving the cloak of certain of uh, secrecy that that they appropriately have, to have messages developed for 
take advantage of that teachable moment. Pe- people want to know why they should care about what is this fantastic breakthrough in my microscopy and how is it important in their in their lives. One can develop good if one knows the science and has the, the lab set up. One can create good messages fairly fairly quickly. So I say, you know, give give people what they want, which is to understand more about the science. Okay, and lastly, uh, subject number five, <laughs> a hero to many scientists, but and also a modern icon, a uh, Star Wars character Yoda. I think Yoda has an important message about how to think about uncertainty, and if he could、uh, help us mortals penetrate that a little, a little better, it would be useful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not just Jedi mind tricks. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, great. Well,、uh, well, thank you so much again for、um, joining us on、uh, the Grokotron 5000. I was happy, happy to talk to you, and thanks, thanks for the,、uh, the challenging、uh, game.、Uh, once again, we we're just joined by Professor Baruch Fischhoff from Carnegie Mellon University, and that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us on the web at www.grox.net, on Facebook and Twitter. You can email us at science@grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music. <laughs>